0: Matthew chapter 5, we're going to pick up starting in verse 20, which we've already covered. For those of you who are new around here or maybe have been gone for a while, we are going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount called the Upside Down Kingdom because what we've seen is that Jesus came on the scene to not just establish a kingdom but upside down from anything that anyone would have thought he should have done. He takes everything and flips it upside down to show the way it was truly meant to be. We're going to see that again this morning. So, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus, again speaking, says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, this is the crux statement of the whole Sermon on the Mount. That's why I wanted to circle back to it um, this morning. We, we, we have to remember, this is hard when we're doing a series as, as robust as this one. It, it's hard to sometimes remember that this was not written or given as a message series. This is a, one message. This was a sermon. Jesus gave it all at one time, which means there was one central point to the Sermon on the Mount. Here it is, right here. He just comes out with it, that your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, if you have any hope of entering in to the kingdom of heaven. Sermon on the Mount. Mount has many applications, many that we've covered, many that we will continue to see. But this is the central message. So, friends, why is Jesus saying this? The Pharisees, remember, were the single most conservative guys in any room. Not just the room they were in, but in any room. The single most conservative guys in the room. They are the heroes of religion, heroes in their country, in Israel. Everyone looked to them and at them as the models of orthodoxy, they believed correctly mostly. And what Jesus is saying is that these guys have gotten their interpretation, not of the law, but of of the God behind the law, twisted. He said they they have misunderstood not necessarily the law but the god who wrote the law the god behind the law so you'll have to have a righteousness that actually exceeds and is better than the righteousness of the pharisees to find yourself in the kingdom of god so what is jesus saying to us well he's saying that that we whether we're his disciples i'm talking to us modern day Whether you would consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, one who is trying to walk in the way of Jesus, or if we're people, this happened in Jesus' day as well, if we're people that just sort of find ourselves orbiting around Jesus, right? there's something intriguing there, but I'm not ready to go all in. There's people maybe today in the room that haven't come to the place where they've gone all in with Jesus. So whether you're a, a disciple or whether you're just sort of hanging out and orbiting around Jesus, he's saying to us that there is something far more than a self-righteous approach to life. He's saying to us that there is a better way of living. That no matter how good you are able to make yourself, it'll never be enough. And at the same time, uh, uh, Jesus's desire is that for those of us who are followers, those of us who are disciples of Jesus, who are following in the footsteps in the way of Jesus, that our lives, he's saying to us that our lives, his desire is that our lives would be characterized by Something and to illustrate this truth, Jesus's, the truth of Jesus's kingdom. Uh, this teaching here he offers in chapter five and in chapter six, uh, these areas, he offers these areas, these illustrations to challenge the Pharisees' interpretation of the law, but also to challenge our modern sense uh, or our modern need, our felt need to check off boxes. You know what I mean by that when I say that some of us have a need to check off boxes, especially when it comes to religion, or especially when it comes to ethics and morality. We, we sort of dump all those in one category and say, well, I need to check that off. Have I volunteered? Have I, have I given money? Have I been charitable? Am I treating other people well? I pull up to the, you know, the, the, the red light and somebody's asking for money and I... I get, you know, I dig through my wallet. And I'm like, well, I don't have anything smaller than, you know, a, a fifty, but I do have some change, so I give. I have. I checked off the boxes, and right? Jesus is challenging our felt need to check off boxes here by saying that none of that's good enough, none of that's deep enough. And what Jesus does with the original audience is it's simple, but yet it's so profound. He takes their assumptions about righteousness and he flips it upside down because his kingdom is upside down. And he does that from, from, with our assumptions as well. And today we're going to look at three of these areas or illustrations that Jesus uses to illustrate his point. In Jesus' day, you had several divisions uh, within Judaism. And you had two large schools of teaching, rabbinical schools, or two traditions of teaching that would have been present in Jesus' day. The two largest rabbinical schools of thought within the Pharisees were Bet Hillel and Bet Shammai. And the way you would spell Bet is B-E-I-T in English. Bet Hillel and Bet Shammai. Um, bait. Somebody tell me what does that word mean? Anybody? Okay. So we all get to learn today. Bait, B-E-I-T, is the word that we sometimes transliterate as Beth in the New Testament. So when you read of Bethlehem or Bethel, it's the same word. What it means is house. So, House of Hillel or House of Shammai, or these schools, these rabbinical schools of thought. Bethlehem then means House of something. What? House of bread. Bethel. Somebody help me. Means House of House of God. It's correct. So, if you go to the back of your Bible and look at um, the inspired maps in the back, okay. You will find in your maps several cities or towns that are B E I T or B E T H. All of that means house of so and so, house of so and so. This is where so and so settled, so they named this village House of So and So. Okay? So you have the two rabbinical schools that are leading in the Pharisaical uh, 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 school of the day, Bet Hillel, Bet Shemad. Okay, so here we go. Bet Hillel is a rabbinical school that is associated with mercy and a desire to reach out beyond the 12 tribes of Israel to welcome in Gentiles and see them converted to Judaism. Uh, They have a missionary flavor to them. They're They're softer in their approach. Some would have looked at them and said, well, you guys are are, are, are more liberal They're only more liberal compared to the other approach, which is bet Shemai. They're harsh, strict. They want to follow not just the letter, but every dot on the letter of the law. Now in Jesus' day, Jesus often found himself in trouble with the Pharisees. I mean, we're, if you've just picked up the Bible and read it just once. I heard some stories. You know that Jesus has run-ins with the Pharisees. Most often, it's one of these two houses that he has major problems with, or rather, they have major problems with him. Beth Hillel would have been far more comfortable with his teaching. Beth Shammai was far more annoyed with his teaching. But later in Jesus' ministry, and then even after the death and resurrection of Jesus, his followers had a problem with both of these houses. Why? Because of what he says here in Matthew chapter 5. It's interesting. When you... Study this stuff and you see people's names show up later and you see how all of this influences Christianity even down to who we are and where we are today. Be- Hillel's leading rabbi was a man we meet in the books, book of Acts named Gamaliel. Everybody, everybody heard of Gamaliel? All right, so who was Gamaliel's most famous student? That's right. Gamaliel is the rabbi of Paul. Okay, Paul... Even growing up and studying from the, the, the school of thought that is a little softer in his approach, Paul in the book of Acts, when he is arrested by the spirit of Jesus, arrested by the blinding light of Jesus, is on his way to do what? To persecute who? Christians, followers of Jesus. So even the softer approach of the Pharisees takes great problems with the teaching of Jesus. Why? Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. All right, you see it right here. What we're about to read is what sets Jesus on the earthly path towards the cross. Now, he's been on a, on a cosmic path toward the cross from before the beginning of time. But this is what begins to put the human wheels in motion and begins to upset the decision makers in the day of Jesus. Why is that? Because of the ideas that Jesus teaches here in Matthew 5-7. to It is offensive today to our dignity to hear the message that our religion cannot save us. In Jesus' day, it was a scandal that led to the cross. Religion cannot save you. That's what Jesus said. Your righteousness would have to exceed the Pharisees, the most religious people in the land. Your religion cannot make you right with God. That's what he's Saying, He's saying your righteousness must go beyond or exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees because what, what, what are you saying? If you're saying that your righteousness has to be better than her righteousness, what are you saying about her righteousness? It's not good enough. Jesus is saying the Pharisees' righteousness is not good enough. Your righteousness would have to exceed it. But what does that mean? But going, it's not going beyond in fervor. Or passion, Jesus is not teaching that you guys just have to believe it more. Jesus is not saying here that you guys have to have to be uh, uh, more studious about your uh, 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 your righteousness. It's not a co- about commitment. It's not necessarily even about orthodoxy because they largely believed correctly. Exceeding righteousness that Jesus refers to is a whole other kind of righteousness. And they didn't understand that yet. What Jesus is not doing here is he's clearly not abolishing these pieces of the law. He turns it upside down. And in so doing, uh, Jesus brilliantly establishes himself as the authority of the law. And there is a difference between teaching in a way that says, here's what I believe this means. And this is unequivocally what this means. Do you see it? One is bound in authority. So you think of it like this. if an author writes a book, just a, any any kind of of fictional work. let's say an author writes a work of fiction and we read into that, we Christians we do this all the time. We'll read a book and be like, oh, I see man there's there's a All this is this is Jesus and this is the disciples and here's what this means and like I really think this represents that and so on and so forth and like we read into things all the time and I do believe that the Lord has planted things in the human heart and so there are themes that carry over into everything but if we then sit down with the author and I'm interviewing the author up here on the stage I said hey we we saw this in your book and we were amazed and the author says I didn't write that that's not what that means who's the authority on the work. The author is the authority on the work. This is what Jesus is deriving towards here. He's leading those in the crowd, the disciples, the followers, those are orbiting around Jesus. He's leading them to the point where he is about to say something scandalous about authority and the author of the law. That's what Jesus does. He is only he could do, places himself above the law and beneath the law all at the same time. For anybody else, it's impossible to do. Jesus positions himself both as a lawgiver, as a law interpreter, and law teacher all at the same time. No one else can do this. It's the, the same principle of Jesus being both the root of Jesse and the branch from Jesse that bears fruit. Giver, teacher, and interpreter. Only an eternal God can be before something, during something, and after something. Amazing, and that's not even the lesson that Jesus is teaching here. Let's see specifically what he has to say to us. Verse 21, you have heard it said, he's established himself as the authority, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, I hear that, you hear that, and I would imagine most of us in here think, okay, I'm doing pretty good at this point. I've never murdered anyone. Right? I'm on, I feel like I'm on pretty solid ground right about now. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Never been liable to judgment for murder. right? Jesus is saying, you've heard that it's wrong to murder people. And Jesus doesn't come out of the gate and says and say, it's actually not. No, he affirms that it is still wrong to murder people. Assuming most of us are still in good shape here, Jesus is quoting from the Sixth Commandment, if you murder, you will be liable to judgment. Jesus is referring to Deuteronomy law. Chapter 16, verse 18, you shall appoint judges and officers in all of your towns that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. If you murder, you're going to be liable in court. In Jesus' day, the ruling court was called the Sanhedrin, the supreme council or or court in charge in first century Israel. It's a group of priests and religious teachers who would meet to make decisions um, with religious Political and social ramifications, if you murder, you're going to stand trial before this group. Verse 22. But I say to you, this is where Jesus challenges us. You have heard it said, but now I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Are you kidding me? Because just a moment ago, every single one of us in the room were like, I'm feeling pretty good about right now. And then Jesus pushes it to anger. If you've ever gotten really angry at someone, if you've ever insulted someone, anybody in the room not insulted someone, no hands go up. We can't make it through a week. Man, what an idiot, right? Ah, what a loser. Like, where'd you learn to drive? Come on now. Meanwhile, our windows rolled up. We're not even talking to them. We're just walking around insulting people when we get angry. We laugh it off. But then we come back to the word and he says, if you've ever insulted your brother, you're liable for that. If you ever say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Let's unpack that briefly. Okay, The literal reading of this is if you say to your brother, Raka, which is translated empty head. Okay, Now, if you really want to get after somebody, you would just use biblical terminology to insult people from now on. Like if you go out of the room and you do that, we've missed the point. You walk, you, walk, you are such an empty head. Where did you learn to drive? You empty head. If you say empty head to someone, Jesus says you're liable to the council's judgment. Furthermore, if you say to someone moros, which is where we get what word? Moron, you are liable to the Gehenna of fire. Moros, of course, is where we get the word moron. It's an ugly word. In Jesus, It's not as ugly today because we've said it so much. Insulting people is just what we've gotten accustomed to. That doesn't make it right. It just means culturally we're really wrong. Jesus' day, it's like calling someone a godless idiot. That's what he's saying. It's it's harsh not building somebody up it's tearing them down these are harsh words super inflammatory words here very ugly words if you call people these things if you are a person that makes a habit of tearing people down or coming up with with names for people jesus is literally saying here your soul is liable to the gehenna or the hell of fire there is a literal wadi or dry riverbed south of Jerusalem. And in the Old Testament, sacrifices were made to a demonic presence, a demonic god called Molech. Child, this is the god of child sacrifices. This would have taken place in this dry wadi, this, this seasonal riverbed, just outside of the city of Jerusalem. This is called the Valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna. Eventually, the Valley of Hinnom, this dried riverbed outside of Jerusalem, that you can see, you can look at from the city wall and see it down there, becomes a dump. It becomes a place where sewage is taken out and dumped, where people would take uh, uh, the leftover trash and stuff and would take it and dump it, and then what would they do with it? But they would burn it. You don't want that stuff just sitting there forever. And so these smoldering fires would be going off. Smoke is rising from the Hinnom Valley, place where child sacrifice had taken place. It's a place of putrid filth. It's filled with maggots. There's no kind way to say this is an ugly place. And Jesus is saying, you're liable to the fires burning right over there in the Gehenna Valley. And he's using this as an illustration Jesus uses the symbolism here to say that we're guilty enough of our internal anger that sometimes results in insulting our fellow man or woman to deserve a place like this as our home forever. It it, it puts in context how we speak to one another, doesn't it? Now listen, if there's a main point to what he said so far, it's this that Jesus does not take issue with the severity of our words, but rather with the darkness of our hearts that produces those words. Jesus does not take issue nearly as much with the words that come out of your mouth as he does with the heart that produces those words. He is far more concerned with the soil that will grow Those kind of insults, that he is the insults that come out of your mouth. Always pushes deeper. You've heard it said that it's wrong to murder. I'm telling you, I want to go deeper than that. You can can go your whole life and not kill another person. And you should. But you could get to the end of your life and say, Well, I checked that off the list. I must be a pretty good person. As Jesus is saying, I don't want you to fall into that trap. Have you been angry before? And everybody says, yes. Have you insulted other people? Yes. Then there's something underneath that has to be addressed. It's the underneath. It's the internal sin of anger and hatred. Just as severe as Cain bashing his brother over the head with a stone and killing him. Murder is the symptom. But it's not the disease. Look at how Jesus illustrates his point. Verse 23 So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Jesus is showing us that rightness of our heart has to take precedence over our religious activity. Because he's more concerned with the internal condition of our heart than what we do or what we say. Because what we do or what we say is born out of our heart. Jesus is not interested in diagnosing and treating symptoms. Jesus, as the healer and good doctor, is only interested in dealing with root causes in your life and in mine. If something is off in our hearts, then it needs to be mended. And Jesus uses the example of anger to draw us in and show us that we're also broken. That there are things that need to be mended in our hearts. I deal and struggle with anger. I do. I just confess that before you this morning. I'll get angry sometimes over, over just foolish and menial things. Rehearsing things in my head for what I think somebody else has done wrong. I'll just be alone and be think, man, I can't believe they said that. Here's what I think they you know, were thinking. And, and what Jesus is showing me here. In in his convicting message is that I can have all of the righteousness in the world outwardly, but unless I allow him to diagnose and fix my own heart, then my own heart issues will remain, and I will remain hopelessly broken, wounded, and possibly even lost. We must let him diagnose so that he can treat what's underneath. Verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So Jesus starts with murder and anger, and everyone that day and everyone this day stands condemned. We all stand condemned by, by these standards, so don't ignore it. Don't ignore the real issues. Don't try to pin this on somebody else, which is what we do, but if he if she hadn't or if she did or if he if only they were or if only they could, or if only they would have thought about this, or if they never would have done that. And Jesus says, in spite of what they have done or what they haven't done, you have to deal with your own sinful hearts. Jesus does not, again, take issue with the severity of our words, but rather with the darkness of our own hearts. So we have to deal with our deeper issues. Why? Because he loves us. We stand condemned, but why? He doesn't condemn us without a cure. He does it to show us that only He is the cure for the darkness of our own souls. You have heard it said, verse 27 You shall not commit adultery. And again, many people would say, Man, I've dodged another bullet. I'm good there. But by this point, we know Jesus better than that. Jesus is not going to let any of us off the hook by saying, as long as you have not physically committed adultery, you're in good shape. That's not at all what he's saying. His issue is not external righteousness. His issue with his disciples who are known, who should be known as following in his way, is internal righteousness. The issue now It's not adultery, is it? Verse 28, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery is the action, but the root is what? Lust. What is lurking underneath the issue of adultery is lust, it's internal, and everyone in Jesus' audience was busted again. Like, oh, we haven't murdered anybody. Oh. They've been angry and said bad things. Oh, most of the crowd's like, I've never physically cheated on my spouse before. And all the unmarried people were like, I can't even do that, so I'm off the hook. And then Jesus completes the statement, says, but if you've lost it, and everybody's like, busted again. Just as everyone was feeling really bad about themselves, Jesus pushes them over the edge, and Jesus presses in. To be clear, he is not limiting sexual sin to one particular flavor of sin called adultery. That's the opposite of what he's doing. He is alluding to all sexual sin here. If we can commit murder with our words, then we can commit adultery with our hearts. Any and every sexual practice or habit that is immoral indeed is immoral in our hearts first. Can you share something heartbreaking with you. Over 40 million Americans are regular visitors to pornography sites. The average visit lasts six minutes and 29 seconds. There are around 42 million porn websites which totals around 370 million pages of pornography. The porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, NBA, and MLB combined. It is more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC. 47% of families in the United States reported that pornography is a problem in their home. Look around the room, that's half. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate. By 300 percent. Eleven. Eleven years old is the average age a child is first born exposed to this kind of filth. Many times, accidentally. Ninety-four percent of children will see pornography before they are 14. of American divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 70% of Christian youth pastors report that they have had at least one teen come to them for help in dealing with pornography in the last 12 months alone. Jesus is not talking about adultery. Jesus is talking about all forms of sexual sin that finds its root underneath the action in the filth of our own souls. And that filth is called lust. Verse 29, this is where things get a little radical. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, he's just talking about lust. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So graphic. So violent. And if we're honest, this sounds a little messed up. Like we read this and we say, that is a weird church. Jesus intentionally talks about the eyes and hands here. Not talking about about another body part. He doesn't say if your elbow causes you to sin, cut off your elbow. Take out a tendon in your knee, the eyes and the hands. Another way to put it is heart adultery is the result of eye adultery. See, physical adultery starts with the eyes. It starts with what we let in. On occasion, uh, 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 if you've been here or in uh, any other church, on occasion here, we have a great group of deacons um, at Central that assist me in the facilitating of communion. Anybody put a part of the Lord's Supper communion before raising hand? Right, just so I know, we all know what we're talking about. right? Either the elements go out or you come forward, you get the bread, a little cracker, and the world's greatest juice. Right? And, and then we all take it together. That is one of the things that they do. It's important for us to remember the sacrifice of Jesus in this manner. Can you imagine, right? And we do this around here uh, four times a year or so. Okay? Can you imagine if we instituted a new deal, a new service? Maybe we, maybe we do this four times a year. Maybe we start today. If we announce that one of the additional services of our deacons would be offering today at the end of the service was the amputation of limbs. Can you, can you imagine? Like Jesus says, if your eye has ever caused you to stumble, pluck it out. And we have some gracious men here that are going to help you with that immediately after the service. Just come on down. Or, if your hand has ever caused you to do something, if you ever used your hand to do anything wrong? Line them up. We're lopping off hands at the end of the service. I mean, is, so is that what Jesus is actually saying? Or does Jesus actually give us more credit than sometimes we deserve? Because there are traditions that treat it like that. Man, I've got I to make myself blind and cut off my hands. I I insulted somebody. I got to cut my tongue out. Right? That that run to these strange extremes. So what's Jesus commanding us to do? It's not to cut off limbs and pluck out eyes. That's an exercise in missing the point. And it actually makes it far easier. And, And here's how we know that's not what Jesus is telling us to do. Why? Because you could pluck out your eyes and could you still lust? Yes. And what is Jesus dealing with here? Lust. So he's not telling us, blind yourself so you won't lust. We're evil enough that we just find new ways to lust. We're broken enough that we would find new ways to do abhorrent things. It's not just your eyes, it's your imagination. One of the greatest gifts given to us, but like all gifts, it has to be used responsibly. So what is Jesus saying to us? He's saying that we have to have this kind of perspective where we are willing to be serious about our own sin and temptation. That we have to be willing to deal with our sin and temptation drastically. Years ago, when Kristen and I were engaged, we went to uh, this, this safari park that's down, where's that at? Pine Mountain area, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you been there. If you haven't, this place is incredible. You you drive through the gates, right? And there's like double gates, so the animals can't get out. You, You you go in, you buy bags of food, and then you drive through the gates. And if your windows are down, the animals just come out, right? And we drive through, and I swear to you, like we didn't we didn't know what to expect. But our windows are rolled down. We go through and like, I don't even remember what kind of animal it was at the time. But this animal, you know, she's looking out my window. And meanwhile, like this large tongue comes like right past Kristen's head. And so she screams and throws the food in the air. And now the food's on the floor. And now all the animals are like trying to get in and get the food. Like, it was, I mean, crazy. Our animals that don't even belong together are all walking around. And it's amazing. Like there's an elk and a giraffe. Pretty sure they live on different continents, but whatever. Go feed them all. Okay, We're at that place. When we leave and we're driving home, and it was great, we're driving home, we look, and there's a wild animal running down the side of the road outside the park. I don't even remember what kind it was, like a wallaby or something like that, something that does not belong. Now, I want you to imagine that situation, but a little different. You're you're driving down the road and you see what looks like a a golden retriever puppy in the ditch. You're a good Samaritan. You love dogs. You love animals. You see a puppy. You want to get it back to its rightful owner. So you pull over. You open the door and you call the puppy and the puppy runs and jumps in your car. But it's not a puppy. It's a lion cub. But it's cute and it's small. And it, it, man, it wants to cuddle. It purrs just like a little house cat. And you don't see anything like on next door or on the news where like lion cub escaped. So you just take it home and you put it in the backyard. And you go buy it like kitten food. You give it a bottle of milk. You raise it as your own pet. Pet. But the reality is you know nothing about raising lion cubs, and you know even far less about raising lions. But the problem with lion cubs is they turn into lions. Now, imagine our surprise one day, if you don't tell anybody any of this, we have no idea that you have a lion in your backyard. Now, just imagine our surprise if one day we turn on the news or we see it come across twitter or you know one of the phone messages we send out goes out we put it on the church facebook page and your name is killed by their pet lion the lion it just eats you one day you go out back to give it its you know kibble and the lion decides it doesn't want to eat dry cat food anymore and so it eats you how shocked would we be? Like you had a lion. We didn't even know. And it ate you. Here's my question. At what point did you go wrong? Was it when it got too big and you're like, you didn't build a big enough cage? Is that when, it got, is that when you went wrong? Or could it be that where you went wrong was when you found a lion cub and you didn't call the zoo or somebody that knows something about lions. See, here, here's what we do, and this is, what, this is the point that Jesus is making. He's saying we, we, we treat our sin and temptation like it's a cute little cub. Well, it was an apex predator. And eventually... will kill you. It will devour everything in your life. And Jesus is saying to us, he's saying to his followers, you have heard this said, but I'm telling you, your heart is too wicked to play around with these things. You have to treat sin and temptation with violence You have to set sentries at your door to guard your heart. Because it will get in. And when it does, you deal with it with some finality. One of the most powerful stories I have ever heard on the nature of the human heart was told by a journalist and writer named Malcolm Mugridge. Now, some of you will know who he was. Working as a journalist in India... When I heard this story, it just impacted me so deeply. Working as a journalist in India, he left his residence one evening to go on a nearby river for a swim. As he entered the water across the river, he saw an Indian woman from the nearby village who had come to have her bath. Muggridge impulsively felt the allurement of the moment. The temptation stormed into his mind. He had lived with this kind of struggle for years, but had somehow fought it off in honor of his commitment to his wife, Kitty. On this occasion, however, he wondered if he could cross the line of marital fidelity. He struggled just for a moment and then swam furiously. See, she had gotten in on the other side of the river. and he swam furiously toward the woman, literally trying to outdistance his conscience. His mind fed him the fantasy that stolen waters would be sweet, and he swam the harder for it. Now it was just two or three two or three feet away, and as he emerged from the water, any emotion that may have gripped him paled into insignificance when compared with the devastation that shattered him as he looked at her. Muggridge writes, she was old and hideous. Her skin was wrinkled, and worst of all, she was a leper. This creature, he called her, grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. The experience left Muggeridge trembling and muttering under his breath, what a lecherous woman but then the rude shock of it dawned upon him it was not the woman who was the who was lecherous it was his own heart the story is a warning for this reason because there was a man who i listened to his preaching and teaching probably more than anyone in my young adult years and i probably, to this point in my life, besides my own dad, have listened to more messages from this man uh, than anyone else. And when I heard him share this story, I was so moved, I forgot about it for years. The story was shared by a teacher named Ravi Zacharias, a man whose ministry profoundly affected me, and, and in some ways, the Lord used to shape my own. After his passing, it was revealed that Ravi was involved in deep sexual sin, including accusations of rape and sexual abuse. And when all of this came out, I thought back to this story that I heard him share. And I just thought to myself, why couldn't he listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit in his own life? Hear me. Every one of us, this is the simplest way I can put it, every one of us in this room are one decision away from stupid. One decision away from stupid at any time. And and our hearts, though redeemed for many of us who are followers of Jesus, are still twisted. And at, at, at times, we find our hearts long for what really is rotten and decay. It's the stuff that burns in the fires of Gehenna. The call for all of us that Jesus is making, the invitation that Jesus is making here is evaluate your life. This morning, each of us should do the least religious thing we can think of. And just be honest with God about what our struggles are. Do you have private sin and temptation? The call for you is confess it to the Lord. Allow the light of his goodness to expose what is rotten and decaying in your own life. Paul, in Romans chapter 6, says, Do not let sin reign. Instead, let Jesus reign in your life. The call violently uproot sin and temptation in your lives. The death of Christ is not just for your salvation. It is for the mortification of your sin. Why did Jesus? We teach this to our children. I'll finish with this. We teach this to our children. Why did Jesus die? We'll ask them. And what is the answer we oftentimes teach? He died for. He died for. He died for our sin. We teach this to children, but then many times we don't move beyond that to say, what does it actually mean that Jesus died for our sin? Part of it is he died to forgive us of our sin when we trust in him. But that's not all of it. And if that's as far as we go with the cross, we miss it. Part of it is he died for our sin to be stripped of its power over our lives. The encouragement is this, because Jesus died for our sin, he can have victory over my sin on a daily basis. The struggles that we have, Oftentimes we have because we do not wake up in the morning and remind ourselves that Jesus died for our sin and he is still resurrected, that he has power over the things that tempt me today. So this morning, in the quietness of our hearts, I'm going to ask the band to come up and lead us one last time. Maybe you need to come forward and kneel and pray. Maybe you need to go to someone and ask for forgiveness. If you do, then do it. But maybe you need to sit and pray and say, Lord, I know I've been, I've been thinking on this. I've been creating scenarios in my mind. I've I, I, I flirted with temptation in some areas of my life and in my heart. And I need you to violently uproot those things by the power of your cross over my life. Will you do that, Jesus? And he is faithful to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, who died for our sin, thank you for your strong words to us that you are so more concerned with, the condition of our heart that you are so more in tune with, the darkness of our heart than you are with the severity of the things that come out of our mouths. And thank you that you call us to take radical action in dealing with our sin and temptation. The most radical thing we can do is hold our hands open and our lives open before you to say, we need, Lord, we need you. So as we sing these words in a moment, Lord, may they really be a prayer of what is really in our heart to you. We love you. In the good and the strong name of King Jesus, we pray. Amen. Will you stand as we